0: Good to have you with us this morning. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. This is an awesome day. Dad's Day. Father's Day. Had my dad with us this morning in the first service, though, him and my mom come regularly. My two sons were here today. Three of my grandsons were here today. But here's the most important thing about this day out of all the titles, that Jesus could have used to help His disciples to pray and to connect with God. He could have used ruler, king, judge, creator. And what does He pick? He says, this is how you connect with all of the creator, sustainer of the heavens and the earth. You call Him Daddy. Daddy. (laughs) That is amazing. That... I hope that we never, ever let that just become common, a common thing. That we could call the creator of the heavens and the earth, the judge, the ruler, the king. He's our daddy. Yes, he's judge, ruler, and king, but all of those are filtered through his father's heart to us. And so, what a great day. What a great day. I've been reflecting on that over the last few days, and man, it's just overwhelming. It is so Overwhelming. If you begin to get a glimpse of that, it will change your life. Believe me, that will change your life. And when you approach the Father, he said, his disciples said, teach us how to pray. And he said, this is how you pray, Daddy. That's what it means, our Father, our Daddy, our Daddy. And so, uh, wow, it's a great day. I know that uh, Father's Day sometimes brings mixed emotion. And as it relates to dads, and this is what it, what occurred to me as I was reflecting on this, that the cure to an earthly father doing you wrong. By the way, none of us had perfect earthly fathers. And so, um, the cure to an earthly father doing you wrong. By the way, Psalm 2710 says that though your mother and father betray you, and ultimately they will all betray you because they're going to die and leave you. But the cure to an earthly father doing you wrong is found in driving home the compassion of your heavenly father. Psalm 103. Go home today and read Psalm 103 with uh, the perspective of that he's your daddy, and it it will begin to change. It will speak to you so, so strongly. And that's my prayer for you. We're going to talk a little bit about this whole idea of, of daddy. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts. Chapter 4, we're going to begin reading in just a moment. Verse 31, we'll work our way all the way to chapter 5, verse 12. How it changes everything is our current teaching series. We're talking about hypocrisy this morning. Oh, good. Sounds like fun. Um, I'm still kind of getting up to speed with a lot of the technology that's around us and um, making use of it. And uh, I just recently got on Facebook (laughs) this last week. I'm a little bit slow, so it 's not all there yet, but uh, I started doing something this last week i I'm tweeting, and uh, anybody know what tweeting is? almost sounds like I 'm doing drugs, doesn't it? <laughs> Hopefully, when I asked you that question, you weren't thinking that but uh, but tweeting Twitter is kind of a new thing that 's out there now that uh that you get. Kind of daily or regular messages, just little little quick sound bites. And so I started doing this, and I thought that if you wanted to follow me on Twitter, I will keep you up to speed with what God is doing in my life, really throughout the week, and the books that I'm reading, and, and I will send you to the different resources that I'm drawing from. If that would be interesting to you, if it's not, I understand. But. Uh, God speaks to me so loud and clear throughout the week that oftentimes I know that I speak for at least an hour plus here, and I thank you guys so much for that, but there is way more than He speaks to me than I have time to be able to share, and there's just a lot of resources that I draw from throughout the week, and God just uh, has been so transforming my life and doing so many unbelievable things, and so if you want to follow me, I'm at Pastor Ray DBCC, and uh, and I would love to keep you up to speed with what God's doing in my life. Some of you look at me like, what is tweeting? What is that? It's because you're old like me, okay? And you need to learn what that means. But, uh, hey, let me, uh, let's head into this study here this morning. It's certainly great to have you with us. And, I, and more than anything, I just want you to really understand the Father's heart for you. If you can walk out of here today and understand that and just live in the reality of it, it'll, it'll, it'll transform your life. I'm going to start off by sharing with you one of my favorite stories. It's becoming a classic story here at DB because I've used it a few times. But a man is being tailgated by a stressed-out woman. Do I need to say more? The guy needs to just get off the road right now, okay? But he's, he's being tailgated by a stressed-out woman. He comes to an intersection, and the, and the light turns yellow. Generally in Arizona, we all understand that the colors of a stoplight, what they mean. For instance, you can yell it out to me, respond to me here. Red means? Okay, very good. And green means? and yellow means? Oh, my goodness. See, we have a problem here. Some of you said accelerate, mash on the gas, and I actually think I think it means to proceed with caution, or you need to come to a stop. Or, I mean, there's a number of things there, but, but uh, it's interesting in this story that he stops at, at the yellow, through the yellow, and the woman behind him goes ballistic, She's yelling at him and waving at him, and in mid-rant, someone taps on the window of her car. It's a policeman. He takes her to the station where she is fingerprinted and photographed and locked up in a cell. After a couple hours, they let her out after the arresting officer gives her back her personal effects, and he says, I'm very sorry for the mistake. Here's how it happened. I pulled up behind your car while you were blowing the horn and using bad gestures and speaking bad language, and then I noticed the What Would Jesus Do bumper sticker on your car, and the Choose Life license plate holder, and the Follow Me to Sunday School window sign, and the Christian fish emblem on your trunk. Naturally, I assumed you had stolen the car. We're going to talk about hypocrisy here, and uh, hypocrisy is one of the top excuses people use for not going to church or becoming a Christian. How many have ever heard someone use that as an excuse for either not going to church or being a Christian or whatever? Yeah. And, and typically, my, here's my response when someone says, ah, oh, the church is full of hypocrites. Here's, here's typically my response. Hey, there's room for one more. Why don't you join us? <laughs> I mean, hey. Yes, I mean, and I would agree, but we're going to talk about this idea of hypocrisy. But let me give you the context of where we're studying here this morning. The basic mark of the Spirit-filled life is is boldness. The basic mark of someone who is living in vital union with Jesus Christ through the work and the power of the Holy Spirit is boldness. Spirit-filled boldness comes from a deep assurance of the Father's love, Daddy's love for us personally through His Son Jesus Christ, obviously made alive to us through the work and the power of His Holy Spirit. Romans eight fifteen through sixteen make, makes that very clear. Spirit filled boldness is marked by two things. Now, let me. This is a quick uh, pop quiz. If you remember what you heard last week, this is what I said. I said that everything you need to know about evangelism you learned in kindergarten, and that is. Show and tell. Very good. Many of you remember that. So it's show and tell. Spirit-filled boldness is marked by show and tell. Deeds and words. Now here's where the problem comes in. Deeds and words must never be separated because when they are, there's hypocrisy. In other words, what you say should be consistent with what you do. If you claim to be a Christian, then it makes sense that it should be reflected in your life, how you're responding to life and how you're doing life. Would you agree with that? But that's where the rub is. That's where the problem is. And that's where the hypocrisy comes into our life. And as we battle that, we're going to talk about that today. Pretty important topic. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Would you bow your heads with me? We'll pray and then we'll dive into our text here this morning. God, we are so thankful that as we approach you, we approach you as our daddy, Uh, The implications of that just, as I've been reflecting on that over the last few days, have just been overwhelming. And Father, um, it is is a deep assurance of Your love through the sacrifice of Your Son, our Savior, on the cross that gives us boldness, boldness marked by, by our words and our deeds, We confess that too often there is this disparity between what we say and what we do. And we too often misrepresent your beauty and your glory in in the good, the bad, the the crazy, ugly of our lives. So as we study your word, may, may our love for you grow as we are more and more smitten by your extravagant and eternal love for us. Therefore, narrowing this gap between our beliefs and our behavior. And we ask these things for your glory. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Take a look at our text here. I'll begin reading chapter 4, verse 31. I'll pause briefly, maybe comment as we walk through this. Verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with The Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. Keep in mind, this is the context here is that Peter and John were thrown into jail overnight. Then they were brought out. They were threatened. Don't say anything more about this Jesus. And of course, Peter says, We can't help but tell people about Jesus, about what we have seen and heard. It's so overwhelming our lives and so overflowing our lives. And so they go back to their friends. The friends point them to God. They have this phenomenal prayer. At the end of this prayer, the Holy Spirit shakes them and fills them, and then we see where they begin to, they continue to speak the Word of God with boldness. That's the, the telling of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the proclamation. And now, the, re, the next part, we begin to see the, the showing part of the gospel, and it, and it so ravishes their heart, the love of God, that they begin to open up their pocketbooks. They begin to open up their lives. They begin to open up their finances. And you can see their generosity. Radical generosity certainly is a mark of those who understand the radical generosity of their daddy, father in heaven. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. It was kind of whatever it takes kind of giving to make sure that the needs were being met. Thus Joseph... "...who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite and a native of Cyprus, sold the field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet." Now chapter 5, verse 1. "...but a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet." But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land while it remained unsold? Now, notice what he says here. Did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? In other words, you could have done with it whatever you wanted to. Nobody was requiring you or demanding you to to do what you did. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. By the way, they buried him immediately. You guys know why. They didn't have the embalming methods that we have today. And in that hot dry climate, bodies would begin to stink. And so they would immediately take them out and bury them. And so they didn't have the pre- preserving methods that we have to this day. So it makes perfect sense what they did here. And so after an interview, interval, of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. And Peter said to her, how is it And you have agreed together to test, notice what it says here, to test the Spirit of the Lord. Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband and notice verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard all these things. No kidding. No kidding. If you really, if you had been there, you would have really had that amazing fear overcome you. And this is God's word to us this morning. So here's the questions we're looking at. What is hypocrisy? What is the cause of hypocrisy? And then how to avoid the trap of hypocrisy? Pretty important topic. And so here's the first fill-in-the-blank on your notes. What is hypocrisy? It is more than the separation of our words and deeds because that is the fundamental struggle of the Christian life. That's the fundamental struggle of the Christian life. Romans chapter 7 has always been somewhat of a comforting chapter for me. I would classify it as the portrait of a struggling Christian, the Apostle Paul. And I I documented it there on your notes, chapter 7, verse 14 through 25. He says something like this. He says, the things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, I find myself doing. Have you ever found yourself in that kind of dilemma? Yeah. And he's just kind of saying that's kind of kind of par for the Christian life. That oftentimes what we say we believe is not consistent with with our behavior. So he talks about this struggle. I gave you another verse there as a cross reference, Galatians five seventeen. The apostle Paul once again says, "For the desires of the flesh." He's talking about this sinful nature that we we all have. This sinful nature this inclination to make life about us. So for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, which would be making life about God, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Isn't that interesting? So Christianity is is narrowing the gap between what we say and what we do. So Christian... Christianity is about narrowing this gap. I I claim to be a Christian, and yet oftentimes, many times, everything about my life doesn't demonstrate that. And so as you grow in the grace and the knowledge of of your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, it would mean that your spirituality is becoming more consistent with reality, with what's going on in your life. Your, Your beliefs are consistent with your behavior, that if indeed you have encountered the Lord Jesus Christ... Certainly, and continue to walk in vital union with Him, I mean, it's going to make a difference in your life. You will experience amazing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control in your life. You will experience a, a uh, holiness. A, another word for holiness would be wholeness, a healthiness to your life and how you sort through life. No doubt about it. I gave you another cross-reference here, uh, 2 Peter 1, 3 through 9. Let me just talk about it. I'll let you read it on your own later on as you're working through the growing notes this week. But very significant set of verses. Peter's writing to second-generation Christians, and this is what he says. He says, man, look, look at what Christians believe. So he goes through a list of beliefs. One of the beliefs at the very beginning of that he says, "His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who 's called us by his glory and goodness, which is huh, that alone. that verse alone is pretty significant. and so he goes through the beliefs of Christians. this is what Christians believe, and then if you study that, he goes on and he says, "And this is how Christians behave." So he goes, "Believes behave, and then he says something really interesting in this text. He says, but if you find yourself ineffective or unfruitful, in other words, if there's this disconnect between what you believe and how you behave, now listen to me, he gets right to the heart of it. He says, here's the reason for it. He says this, "Um, for you have forgotten you are cleansed from former sins. (laughs) Some of you are kind of, well, yeah, okay, sure, I know that. Yeah, Yeah, you know that, but you really don't know that. You know it, yeah, God forgave me of all my sins, but you don't know it to where it has ravished your heart, where it's gotten deep into your heart and you're living in the reality of it. Because what he does is he takes them right back to the very beginning, the foundation of their life, that all of your sins, your former sins have been forgiven. Do you understand the implications of that? Now, as I thought about this, this whole idea of this gap between beliefs and behavior, let me walk you through some, some illustrations here to help you to understand this. I don't spend too much time on this. But I, I think it's necessary to kind of build a foundation for what we're studying here this morning. Sanctification, holiness, wholeness, fruit of the Spirit the best life you could ever live, putting on display the the glory, the goodness, the beauty of Jesus. You would live your life in such a way that it would stir up appetite within others to want what you have, this relationship with God. Sanctification inevitably follows justification. That's what he's saying. That's what Peter's saying. Sanctification inevitably follows justification. What's justification? Justification. It's where I put my faith in Jesus and I'm declared righteous before God. I stand, all is well between God and I. I stand in right relationship with God by faith in Jesus Christ because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. When he said to them, all of your former sins are forgiven, the reason why there's a disconnect between your beliefs and your behavior is because you have forgotten this. You have forgotten the cross. You need to get a hold of the cross, but more importantly, the cross needs to get a hold of your life. Now, when you think about that, think about the implications of that. Here's what he's saying. So your justification flows out of your... Your sanctification inevitably follows justification. Justification is where we come into faith in Jesus Christ, and to the degree that I begin to believe that, embrace that, it begins to transform my life. This is how I oftentimes like to look at it, and I can typically see where I am in this as far as the, the gap between my beliefs and my behavior. Justification, peace with God. You have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans um, 5.1. To the degree that you believe that you have peace with God, now think of the implications of that. You have access to the throne room of God, regardless of what you've ever done. All of your sins are forgiven, never to be held against you. You have access to the throne room of God. You can boldly come before the throne of grace with confidence to receive mercy and find grace to help you in your time of need. God is with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. He's working all things for your good and His glory. The best thing in your life can never be taken from you, and that's a relationship with God. And the, the best is yet to come. When you look through the implications, peace with God, don't you think that we will have the peace of God that rules our hearts and minds? See, the peace of God, peace of God would mean that when I face crisis or a, or a bad scenario in my life or chaos, I don't have to freak out. I don't have to be stressed out. I don't have to be anxious. Because I have the peace of God that rules my heart and life and that is anchored in the fact that I have peace with God. The reason why many of us don't have the peace of God, peace of God, fourth chapter of Philippians, he says that there is a peace that will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. That no matter what is going on in your life, There is a calmness inside when all hell is breaking loose outside of you. Do you have that? You can. It comes as a result of understanding that you have peace with God. There's a disconnect between what you believe and how you behave. And it always, always, listen to me, it always goes back to right here. He once and for all established this. There are no barriers that would separate you from God. The only barrier you have is you. Jesus died on the cross for you. He built the bridge across the chasm of, the eternal chasm of sin. You have access to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Do you understand the implications of that? Are you living in the reality of it? And to the degree that you do that, you will have the peace of God that rules your heart and mind. And it will change the way that you respond to life. Um, behavior always follows, inevitably inevitably follows belief. Yeah, but yeah, okay, Pastor Ray, I understand, <laughs> I understand that. I believe, I believe in that, just what you said and I believe all that. Yeah, but if I were to follow you around, your behavior... Your behavior is telling me something completely opposite of what you're telling me that you believe. Yeah, you believe in Jesus, and yet much of those truths have yet to go deep into your heart. The coins have not yet dropped. Let me give you a quick illustration of what I mean by that. God forbid if this were to happen, but let's just say that I get, I get a text message up here, although this is... Well, somebody did send me a text message. Hmm. Um, I won't look at it because that's rude. But let's just say that I get a text message and somebody says, hey, there's a bomb in the performing arts building right here in the auditorium and it's going to go off in five minutes. If you believe that, how would you respond? What would your your behavior portray? See, oftentimes our behavior betrays our beliefs because it's inconsistent. But if you really believe that, what would you do? How many would run out of here really fast? How many would push the person down next to you to get out of here? Okay, your husband? Yeah, get him out of the way. Get out of the way. Yeah, I hear you. I mean, really, we would. I mean, some of, there would be almost a, like a panic, It's like ah. And many of us, we'd be saying, we try to get everybody out of here as much as much and as fast as we could. If you just sat down and started reading your Bible, I would have to say you either don't believe that, or you want to go see Jesus right now. You know, either one or the other. Maybe you you, you believe it too much, and you want to you want to go see Jesus, or you don't believe it at all because your belief will will be translated into your behavior. Let me share with you a couple quotes here. One is from uh, C.S. Lewis in his book, God in the Dark. He says, he makes the obvious point that, here, here's the quote, he says, you can't get second things by putting them first. You can get second things only by putting first things first. <laughs> you go, What? In other words, while justification is not the only thing, it is the first thing, the judicial ground of our union with Christ, which yields amazing life change. The more I understand the cross, the more than just me getting a hold of it, but it gets a hold of me. It changes your life. God is for me, not against me. Do you believe that? The more you begin to believe that, the more it changes you. So the the idea is getting it deep into your heart. Here's another quote from uh, Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon. He says, when I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I smote God. Upon my breast to think that I could ever have rebelled against one who loved me so and sought my good. See, the more you understand his love for you, the more it's your wish is my command. Your life begins to fall in, fall in that direction. Okay, I did spend a lot of time on that, didn't I? But let's pick up pace here a little bit. The next one is, so the real sin of hypocrisy is a refusal to live in honest repentance. So yeah, we have to admit the fact that there is a gap between how we be, believe and, and wh- how we behave, what we believe and how we behave. And so the real sin of hypocrisy is a refusal to live in honest repentance. No sin will completely break fellowship, ruin the church's witness, and destroy our relationship with God except the refusal to repent. Another quote here, this is from Martin Luther, the great reformer back in the 1500s. Martin Luther at the beginning of the Reformation, and it's, it's a great study if you ever get a chance to even actually, there's a movie that was out a number of years ago, Luther, really great movie, but he nailed 95 theses on the Wittenberg church door and the very first one on this list of 95, do you guys know what it is? All of life is repentance. All of life is repentance. Now, let me give you a quote from a theologian. This is what he said. All all of the Christian life is repentance, turning from sin and trusting in the good news that Jesus saves sinners aren't merely a one-time inaugural experience, but the daily substance of Christianity. The gospel is for every day in every moment. Repentance is to be the Christian's continual posture. So every moment of our day, we should be making these course corrections. For instance, when I find myself anxious, I start worrying. I worry about my daughter that lives in Tucson, or I worry about, the you know, what's what's going on in this church, or one thing or another, I can begin to, and it becomes inordinate. A certain amount is okay. It's part of our emotional makeup. But when it becomes inordinate, when it dominates our life, that is opportunity for me to repent. Repentance is, a, is an about-face. It's a U-turn. And so I can repent and say, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm not trusting God's loving, wise control of my life. Why am I stressing out? And I can turn away from sin and turn towards the Savior. When I find myself bitter over what someone has done to me, I can work through the repentance of that. I begin to say, hey, wait a minute. God, you forgave me. And I look and begin to think about the implications of his forgiveness of me. And when I begin to be overwhelmed by that, then I can in turn forgive others. Only until I understand how he's forgiven me can I forgive others. But there's this repentance involved. Or when when I'm depressed... When I have a sense of hopelessness, there's opportunity for repentance to say, hey, wait a minute, why am I so downcast, O my soul? As the psalmist said in Psalm 42, put your hope in God. He will see you through. He will take care of you. And the the psalmist is kind of grappling with these issues, and he's, he's repenting, and he's saying, wait a minute, I have built my life, my hope, my dreams on something that's coming apart, but if my hope and dreams are in him, that will never come apart. I, I, God, help me to look to you. I look to you. And so that's where we begin to narrow the gap between what we believe and how we behave. It's through repentance. It's not a bad thing. It's not hypocrisy that we have a gap. Yes, we have the gap. But the hypocrisy is that we would not be honest, that there would not be the honest repentance. And so I gave you a number of verses here John 16, 8, it tells us it's the work of the Holy Spirit that He convicts us. He he works like a smoke alarm that when I do see myself stressing out or or bitter or or depressed or any number of things that are happening in my life inordinately, then I can repent in Romans 2, 4. Oh, I love that verse. It's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. You see, when I'm stressed out, angry, whatever, inordinately, it's in those moments God reminds me, why are you playing in the mud puddle when I've got a Caribbean cruise waiting for you? Why are you dumpster diving when I've got a banquet table for you? And I remind myself of what he has and who he is for me. Another verse, Romans 8.1. How many are familiar with Romans 8.1? This, this would be one worth memorizing. For there is therefore now. No condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And literally, if you study the Greek, it says, no, not ever. No, not ever any condemnation. None of your sin will ever be held against you. Why are you beating yourself up over your past? He said, I will never hold your sin against you. That's pretty significant. I got a long list of sins. And he said, I'm not holding any of that against you. And so, what it does is it creates within us this paradoxical obedience. I avoid sin like crazy because I'm going to put him on display. But when I fall into sin, there is therefore now no condemnation. I get back up and keep going. And I confess it. And that's what confession is it's just agreeing with God. 1 John 1 8 through 9 it says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So, if we kind of pretend that we've got it all together, I don't sin. You sin? We all sin. We all sin. He says, if you claim to be without sin, you deceive yourself. Truth is not in you. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession just means to agree with God. Yep, I messed up. And so here's... Failure is not falling down, but it's refusing to admit it and get back up. Failure is not falling... You're going to fall down. But the failure is refusing... Listen to me... It's refusing to admit it and then get back up. No more blame shifting. I understand. I understand your chromosomes. They can influence you. Your circumstances, certain amount of conditioning growing up. I'm not minimizing that. I know that that can be devastating. It can influence you, but it doesn't control you. Ultimately, you have to take responsibility. And though you have fallen down, admit it, get back up. That's that honest repentance. Here's the next one. Okay. Spend a lot of time on those first two. Hypocrisy is a serious sin because it undermines the... Oh, they already put it up there. I was going to have you discuss... It undermines the essence of Christianity. I was going to ask you, what is the essence of Christianity? Community. Yeah. Now, in our society today, we tend to emphasize achievement over community. Would you agree with that? Would you say that achievement is important, yeah, but not near as important as community? in fact, in our society today, we tend to use community and abuse community so that we can achieve and the Bible would actually put achievement way back on the way back on the burner, so to speak, way back behind us and actually it 's about community, and so hypocrisy tends to undermine that one of the reasons why you know that I believe in God. I believe um, that we are created in the image of God. There's a number of things, and I see this happen in people's lives, but particularly that because I've spent a considerable amount of time with people on their deathbed, I can tell that they were created in the image of God, and the image of God is that of community and that of relationship, and relationship is more important than achievement because I have never, ever, ever on their deathbed ever heard anybody ever say this, I wish I would have spent more time at the office. You've heard that before. I wish I would have made more money. I wish I would have uh, had a bigger boat. Wish I wish had a bigger, bigger house. Nobody, nobody ever says that on their deathbed. Here's what they say. Relationship, community, God. I wish I would have spent more time with my kids. I wish I would have spent more time with my family. I wish I would have spent more time with my friends. What does that tell us? We're created in the image of a relational God and that our life, when it's all said and done, when push comes to shove, it's about community and hypocrisy undermines that. Now, here's what's interesting is that you'll notice this. And this is a bit disturbing for me as I read through this. I don't know if you had the same effect, but verse 5, chapter 5, he fell down and breathed his last, Ananias. And then verse 10, she fell down and breathed her last. I mean, God kills them. God kills them. Doesn't that bother you? It bothers me. And, and here, what I believe is that God God was making a point, not setting a precedent. Aren't you glad for that? He's making a point, not setting a precedent. Because if he was setting a precedent, this place would be empty this morning. It would be just me and Jesus here this morning. How many saw that one coming? Okay, I need new material, don't I? Okay. No, none of us would be here. Because we all struggle with this game-playing, mask-wearing. He kills them. Why? Why is this so serious? Verse 3, chapter 5, because they lied to the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, lied to God. Verse 9... They were testing the Spirit of the Lord. How many parents have ever had their kids test you? Every day. Yeah. What, they te- what are they saying? Here's my two cents on parenting. Anger never motivates. Action motivates. They're wanting to know where the lines are. And if you are inconsistent with the lines, you're going you're gonna to raise a, a yo-yo. I mean, they're going to be up and down, back and forth, but you be consistent. You have the boundaries in the context of love and relationship, but you be consistent with the enforcement of that. And uh, I don't know why I said that, but it was part of the text here other than the fact that they were testing and so they were kind of pushing God. Oh, by the way, you need to also know this is that because uh, don't ever confuse God's, God's patience with His um, permission. Does that make sense? Because oftentimes we think, well, God didn't strike me with lightning. He did them. Not with lightning, but they died. He's making a point. God is not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. He's patient with you. So what are you playing with God for? Why Why would you do that? Why would you turn away from God like that? So that's a big point. That's It's serious stuff. And... Um, and so I think there's a number of things that he's teaching us. I think one is that all sin is ultimately against God. He's, he brings it right back to God. You sinned against God. No, I didn't. I sinned against these people. No, ultimately you sinned against God. All sin is against God. Martin Luther put it this way. The sin underneath all sins is the lie that we cannot trust the love and grace of Jesus and that we must take matters into our own hands So think about this. Ananias and Sapphira lied, and they held back some of this money because they didn't think that God was enough and couldn't trust him, and so they began to take life into their own hands. That's the essence of all of of our sin. And so this idea of community, how important is it? Well, Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbors yourself. He said, that's the most important commandment. The most important achievement is relationship." And then it tells us in Psalm 145, 18. This was pretty interesting as I was studying this. The Lord is near to all who call on Him. It doesn't stop there. I mean, I like that part. But there's a a premise to the promise. Here's the premise. That's a great promise. The Lord is near to all who call on Him. Call on Him and the Lord is near. But here's the premise to the promise. To all who call on Him in truth. Honesty transparency. You want closeness with God? He can't relate to you through pretense, through a mask. Here's another great verse as it relates to our relationships with one another. First Peter 4, 8. It says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. So anytime the Bible says, above all, this is really, really important, keep loving each other earnestly, which is, means with transparency, openness, and honesty. And then it says, since love covers a multitude of sins. Isn't that interesting? So in our transparency, we're going to see a lot of ugliness in our lives, but love covers over a multitude of those sins. You're going to be able to work through those things because we're all in the same boat. So hypocrisy undermines the essence of Christianity, which is relationships. I mean, think about that. What is required for close... Intimate relationships. What do you need to have intimate relationships? Yell it out to me. Trust. Did you say trust? Anybody think trust? Honesty. If there's no honesty, if there's no trust. Listen, if I'm in a small group with you and I don't trust you, I probably won't share much of my heart with you. Would you agree with that? So it requires trust. And to create trust, there has to be openness and honesty. And there has to be integrity in the fact that, hey, I'm open about my life here. Vulnerability begets vulnerability. And with honesty comes trust, and with trust comes intimacy, and with intimacy comes unbelievable fruitfulness and fulfillment in our relationships. And so hypocrisy undermines that. That's why it's so so serious. And then, so what is the cause? Let's work through this. This goes pretty quick. So what is the cause? That's why... That's the "what is hypocrisy, but what is the cause? Let's dive right down into our heart. We were created to stand in the very presence of God and receive His favor. That's your fill in the blank. After you fill that in, I'm going to have you do something. I want you to do something with me, just if you would, please, real quick. Just close your eyes just for a moment. The Bible tells us in Genesis 3 that God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. It's a Hebrew idiom for close, fulfilling relationship. God intended for them to connect with Him in such a way that they would receive His favor. And I want you just to think about that just for a minute. Can you imagine looking into the face of the Creator of the heavens and the earth, and He calls you His child? You're His beloved child and whom He loves, and and He pours His favor into you and places value upon you. That He created you to draw you into this relationship with Him. That is amazing. Think about that. What are the ways that we can do that, although they were able to walk with God, but because of the fall, now we connect with God through the reading of His Word. That we are looking into the, the very face of God, the very presence of God, to stand in His presence through the reading of His Word, through prayer, through fellowship with other believers, and to begin to receive His favor Can you imagine how that would so fill up our lives? The problem is, you can open up your eyes now, take a look at the next point. We turn away from God in unbelief, and this spiritual alienation leaves us psychologically alienated. And so because we kind of think that we can do it on our own, the essence of that is just unbelief. "Ah, I can do it better than God. I don't really believe that He has my best interest at heart, so we turn away from Him And in pride, think we can do it on our own. And then we replace him, it's called idolatry, with something else. Philippians 2, 3 makes it very clear here. It uses this word empty, so there's this psychological... Obviously, it's going to make sense. I'm going to have psychological emptiness. And it uses the word conceit. The word conceit in the Greek means vainglory. Philippians 2, 3 says, Don't let rivalry or conceit be in your lives. And this idea of vain glory, vain means empty, glory means weight, significance, importance. And so what he's saying is that you are empty of weight, significance, importance. You have conceit. Your soul is empty. You're psychologically, because you're psychologically alienated, because you are spiritually alienated from God and are not receiving His favor upon your life. So what do we do? Next point, next thought. We try to manage our psychological alienation, our emptiness, through hypocrisy. Pretense, rivalry, if you go back and do a study in Philippians 2, 3, he uses this word rivalry, which is self-promotion, leading to social alienation, causing more psychological alienation, creating more loneliness. If If I try to relate to you with pretense, I can't really get close to you, you can't get close to me. Even if you did tell me that you love me, you're only loving a mass that I'm showing and portraying. And so it's quite interesting, and we do this, so it really comes down to when we push away from God, it creates this, that spiritual alienation no longer receiving His favor. By the way, by the way, if you have His favor, it will so fill your life up. You will be filled with God. That's the idea. And His love, weight, significance, importance of God placed upon you portrayed once and for all through the cross. When you understand that and know that live in the reality of that, then when you go out into life, psychologically you are full and you create within you, there's this uh, blessed, as C.S. Lewis says, a blessed self-forgetfulness. It's not that you think less of yourself, you think of yourself less. There's no preoccupation with self because there's a fullness. And so you go out into life and you have something to give. Otherwise, there is... Conceit in rivalry, vainglory, self-promotion. By the way, there's a couple of different ways that we do that. Pride has, it's, it's a two-sided coin, so to speak. One side of pride is boasting. Hey, I deserve admiration. Look what I've done. Look what I've accomplished. Everybody look at me. That's one side of pride. Another side of pride, it's kind of subtle, but most people don't know this. The other side of pride is self-pity. Hey, everybody, look at me. I deserve admiration because of how much I've suffered. Both sides are the same coin of pride. And it's all about self-preoccupation, self-absorption, self-centeredness because we're not standing and looking into the face of God and receiving His amazing favor towards us, therefore filling up our lives and then being able to go out and share that with the world. And so let's face it, every one of us pretends to be healthier and kinder than we really are. And we all engage in what might be called depravity management. The irony of this is that we, we can only be loved to the extent that we're known. You can only be loved to the extent that you're known. Listen to what t- uh, Tim Keller says. He says, Ananias and Sapphira were using God to get a, r- a righteous reputation rather than serving God out of gratitude for His giving them the righteousness of Christ. Ananias and Sapphira were using religion to look and feel superior to others. This leads to using the people of God rather than serving them, and therefore a stab in the heart of God. And here's what's amazing about this is that even in this so called perfect environment of Christian community, we have this couple who misses the big E on the I chart Jesus, the cross, God's favor in their lives. Now, think about this. Why did they try to deceive? It was because of greed, and it could have come down something like this. They told everybody, hey, we're going to give, we're going to sell this piece of land, we'll give it to the church, and uh, whatever we get, we'll give, but they got more than what they thought. Instead of 50,000, they got 100,000, and they thought to themselves, hey, let's hang on to this 50, and we'll give the the other 50 to the church. And so they lied because of greed, but they also lied because of people-pleasing. Now, think about this. This is the cure to it. And I wrote this down as I was thinking about this idea. Think about this. If you have the wealth of God... You don't need the wealth of man. If you have the approval of God, you don't need the praise of man. You have the approval of God. You have the wealth of God. And to the degree that you begin to understand that, live in the reality of it, to the degree that you don't have to chase after those things. Next point on your notes, the gospel's message of unmerited favor, grace to unworthy sinners... Sets us free from depravity management. We can be honest. This is something that I've told you over and over again. That to the degree that you understand this is to the degree that there will be no towering or cowering in your life. There will be no superiority. There's no ground for superiority in grace and no grounds for inferiority because it goes like this I am more sinful than I ever dared to think I was so sinful Jesus had to die for me how could I ever look down on anybody but it doesn't stop there I am more loved than I ever dared to dream I am so loved that Jesus wanted to die for me how could I ever feel inferior around anybody regardless of where they might be in life the king of glory died for me that's amazing that's amazing so how to avoid the trap Get ready to write. We're going to knock these out, and I'm going to share with you a Father's Day story here. We need to hold each other accountable. Did you notice in uh, verse 2, chapter 5, with his wife's knowledge, he kept back back for himself. With his wife's knowledge. Oh, my goodness. What does that say? His wife basically enabled him. She could have said, hey, dude, dude, wait a minute. I love you. I love the way you provide for our home, but we can't do this. This is wrong. She should have stood up to him. Ladies, stand up to your man. Men, stand up to your woman. You need to hold each other accountable. But also, just outside of that, we need to hold each other accountable. I gave you a couple verses there. We need that accountability. Sometimes when we're being deceived by sin, sin, there's a deceitfulness of sin. We need to have someone help blow the cover on us so that we can turn our hearts back towards Christ. Next thought, sin must be severed at its root. Did you notice in verses 3 and 4, it talked about this heart. He says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie light of the Holy Spirit? So the behavior was coming out of the beliefs that were in their heart. So the sin has to be severed in our beliefs. There's something wrong with our beliefs. Verse 4, you've contrived this deed in your heart. That's why St. Augustine said, the key to change is not the acts of the will, but the loves of the heart. We've got to look at the loves of the heart. What were the loves of their heart? Money, people-pleasing. How do you deal with that? Next thought, seeking seeking unspeakable glorious joy in God severs the root of sin. One of my favorite verses, 1 Peter 1.8, it says, Peter writing to second generation Christians, he says, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and you are filled with unspeakable, you can't even put it into words, kind of joy and glorious joy. Glory, weight, significance, importance. And no matter what you're going through, His joy in you is enough to face anything. How could they have overcome that? I, I put a couple verses down. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. Listen to this. It says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. How can we do that? How could they have done that? Right here, for he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. They have God. The greatest wealth that they had, that we have, is God. That's how you, you go against the greed that would, that would rob our hearts to try to get us to chase after money, thinking that we're going to find our sense of significance and weight and importance in money. Here's another one. How could they have overcome their people-pleasing? This is a verse that I've used many times in my own life. Galatians 1.10, for, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I'm still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul has just said some pretty strong words to the church in Galatia. And he says, I'm not trying to please you, obviously. I'm trying to please God. Audience of one, last point. Live for an audience of one. Live for an audience of one. Here's my daddy, my daddy day story. When I was in uh, high school, I ran track, loved track, enjoyed track. In my junior year, I was on the varsity track team running the 800 meter, which is two laps around the track. I had a coach who had two sons on the, on the team along with his kind of pet runners, and he tended to spend most of his time focused on uh, his sons and, and his favorite runners. So, uh, need I say that he didn't spend a lot of time with me or there was other guys on the, on the track team that were somewhat neglected but I loved track, I loved it so I continued to run, continued to work out continued to do all that I could to be a good runner had some fun with it run, won some races but I'll never forget this as long as I live I was at a track meet junior year Alhambra High School stands were packed there were 12 schools, high schools there six schools competing against themselves and then another six schools. So they're kind of running two meets simultaneously. They had called for the 800 meter. The coach gave last minute instructions for the, the guys that were in there. And I was one of a few that were running from our school. But I mean, it was just packed out, 800 meter. And so they had us set up in the, on the track where we were running and you run in lanes initially. And they were all kind of bunched up into lanes and and th- those guys had the, the favored positions and the coaches said, ah, wherever, just get out there and do your best. And so I was running all the way out to the end and there was a certain point when you get around the track that you cut in. And I was aware of that, but so I started off on the race and I was back in the pack, a number of guys in front of me, kind of running the best I could. And I'll never forget this, as I was coming around, around the track running in front of the stands, people going crazy. I mean, it was just crazy noisy. I could hear my dad's voice. I could hear him calling my name in only how he could do. Enthusiastically cheering me on, calling out to me. I heard his voice so strongly in the midst of all the noise and it so infused me with adrenaline. I was like a new person. I'll never forget it. It was just like, I took off running and I passed one guy guy after another guy after another guy after another guy all the way on the backside coming around and almost passed the very last guy. It was him and I neck and neck and he beat me out just barely. I shouldn't have even placed I shouldn't have even placed. It was the cheering on of my dad on the sideline. And I've never forgotten that. Here's the message for every one of us this morning. Audience of one. You are loved and honored by the only eyes in the universe that really count. Can you hear him this morning? He's cheering you on. He loves you. He is saying, I am for you, not against you. And may that infuse you with a new kind of Holy Spirit adrenaline unlike you've ever experienced before. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand with me for closing prayer. Father God, Daddy, what... It just amazes us that we can approach you with confidence and call you our Daddy. And uh, God, I pray that throughout this day that, that you would remind us that, that those that so desperately need to hear that this morning, that they would hear you cheering them on and be reminded of the cross and to what extent you have gone to to love us and to show your love to us. And, and may it not just be something we believe, may it transform how we behave. And may we be honest. May we have honest repentance in our life when we're not there to be honest with you and honest with one another. that God help us So more and more have this boldness in our lives as we walk in vital union with you. And may our deeds and our words be consistent. We pray for your glory. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. God bless you.